Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Just why are markets cheering if the U.S. jobs numbers turned out weaker than expected? Then we take a look at China's stocks this morning. Huarong Asset Management, too big to fail or are investors spooked for good reason? And Meituan Denping, the Tencent-backed food delivery behemoth, under investigation for a suspected monopoly conduct, just last week completed its share placement and the issuance of zero-coupon convertible bonds that raised a total of $10 billion for unmanned delivery drones uh, for its autonomous delivery vehicles. And uh, so we take a closer look at the business made Tuan Dianping and what the developments mean for investors. And later, just a hustle or one with real space ambitions? Is Dogecoin literally going to the moon? And if so, what does that mean for its price? We'll find out with Jack Cousy, founder and director of the VFS Group. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, Michelle. How are you? I am doing really well. And uh, how, how are things down under? We're good. Um, Sydney's in a bit of a uh, renewed type of lockdown. Not really a lockdown, just some renewed things that we've got to do. We can't stand uh, in pubs and restaurants anymore or clubs and we can't dance. Mm -hmm. But um, we have a little bit of a case here, but it seems to be under control. So uh, we're thankful and and we hope we're going to continue to go. So, But everything's fine here. All right. That's good to hear. Uh, Here we've moved to sort of phase two like conditions, a little bit more measures uh, in terms of social distancing, many fewer PF, much fewer people at work and on the roads as well. All right. It is. It is. It just, I will just not to interrupt you. It just shows you what type of world we're living in, and it's reflective of markets in front of us. You know, it's just, it's unprecedented. Everything seems to be a new thing or something that we've never seen, and and that's the nature of the world at the moment and global financial markets. So, good point. So goes on. Yeah, we were hoping for a straight up recovery. Nothing's as easy as a straight line up. Now, the much-awaited U.S. jobs report, uh, Jack, they're out, and they've come in way below expectations. So the U.S. economy created some 266,000 new jobs in April. Economists were anticipating 1 million new jobs. Now, markets rallied on the news. Bond yields fell. The Dow and the S&P 500 both rose to new record highs, and tech stocks did well as well. Jack, help us out with a basic narrative. Why is a weak jobs report one that's worse than expected? seemingly one that's good for the markets. Yeah, way worse than expected. I mean, there were some analysts you like you just alluded that said they were going to you know, do a million. I heard someone say two million for the yeah. month. Um, and not only was it way below the million mark, they had to revise March and February numbers down. So the breadth of the recovery that we keep hearing about in the US, and it is definitely on the way to recovery, should be reflected in more jobs in the market, and it certainly wasn't. Um, and it was quite a disappointing number and maybe points to a slower recovery and also points to whether the policies are working. And, and, you know, there's a lot of fiscal support that's going on in the U.S. Biden does want to bring in this infrastructure plan. They pointed to that as a way to bring the numbers up going forward. But you also got to question whether people are sitting at home because they're getting checks in the mail, mm. whether they're motivated to go out and get a job. Now, my understanding is that for every job that's placed, is about 1.1 workers for that job. So it is a tight labor market. So you've got to give that to the U.S. in terms of who is looking for a job. And that's 
you know, possibly to do with all the free money and, and funny money that's being floated around the economy. Sure. But it's a number that you have to look out for. Now, if you're thinking about the market and thinking about the economic recovery, you are now asking yourself the question, is this an anomaly mm-hmm. or is this, you know, a, a sign of further things to come for the U.S.? Yeah. I'm kind of in the middle. I think we were over-exuberant. I think we thought the recovery was too quick, and this number has shocked many analysts and many investors in the market. Now, the second part of your question, or the second part is, why did the market rally? Well, the market rallied because on a number of reasons. I think the biggest one was no interest rate hikes here. You know, they couldn't see the Fed saying, well, we're going to hike interest rates with such a weak labor market. And that allowed the market to breathe. It's become so used to all this funny money in the air. It's so become so used to low interest rates and excess liquidity by the central bank. It kind of said to itself, well, this ain't going to happen. It also took pressure off, pressure off the Fed. You know, if it was a booming labor market, mm. people would still be talking about inflation. Mm. And again, you know, that removed some type of pressure from them. So that's why the market rallied. Now, if you look at what areas of the market rallied, it was really the NASDAQ that popped, right? So the Dow Jones kind of traded down and then moved back up and so did the S&P 500. But the NASDAQ was the real winner out of this, and this was the stay-at-home, you know, those, those stocks that did well in that low interest rate environment that everybody's been worried about, and it was the reopening stocks that have done very well in the past couple of months with the ones that didn't see the boom. So... You know, mm-hmm. it's, we, we alluded to this at the start of the show. We are so unsure. And yeah. you know, analysts and economists who are much smarter than myself can come out and believe we're going to get a million number and it's 266,000. You can tell how much of this is a guessing game right now in markets and that's what's putting um, investors at ease. I mean... Now, the U.S. unemployment rate rose for the first time in a year. Manufacturing sector lost some 18,000 jobs, even though consumer demand for goods has been strong. And the largest job gains were in leisure and hospitality. So, Jack, if we take a closer look at the numbers, what do you think they signal about the U.S. economic recovery? I think companies are being smarter about the rehiring here, Michelle. I think this is what it is. I think there's a lot of exuberance by these companies, but it's not necessarily playing out in employing more people. Now, we can understand why we saw the, you know, the bounce in, in, in leisure. You know, we're reopening. It's just a numbers game. But I think it brings in a broader perspective of you know, companies have learned to manage with less, and therefore their uptake in the labour market isn't what we thought it was. And again, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is this an anomaly or will this continue? Can we get back to those pre-pandemic levels? Mm. Do companies want to carry those, uh, that much overheads and that much head stuff? Does being able to work from home allow us to get away with less? And are they simply looking to cut costs in the first part through that labour market? I think that's the broader question we need to ask about the US labour market. We talk about structural changes that have occurred in the economy. We talk about pulling forward tech, you know, years and, and the way this pandemic is trained structurally. Is it changing structurally the way the numbers that we look at? Right. It's a push and pull. You know, I look at something like Uber, you know, they're talking about not having enough drivers on the road and therefore pushing that cost up. So it's, it's industry by industry, as you just alluded. But it's these broader structural issues and how long-term and are we living in a different economy that we're still trying to figure out in things like the labour market.
Yeah, still trying to figure out a lot. Now, the Fed is addressing the recession and recovery quite differently uh, from its predecessors. In the past, you could say the Fed took away the punch ball before the party got out of hand. But now, with a focus more on employment than inflation, it is sticking to its easy monetary policies. Are the latest numbers a validation of the Fed strategy, Jack? It's a really good question, Michelle. Uh, that's a really good question. I wish I had a straightforward answer for you. Um, I wish I did. I don't know now. I, I, I mean, I understand what the Fed is doing. Um, but this go big, you know, push everything, like you said, it's just not the punch bowl. It's the punch bowl. It's the chips. It's a taxi on the way home after the after the birthday party. It's a bowl of soup in the morning because you're hungover from the party. I mean, it's, you know, it's everything that you want the market, the Fed is giving it. And, you know, whether we're going to have to pay the price for this at some point in time, because we have a market that's so dependent on liquidity, so dependent on low interest rates, that even the sign of talking about it scares everybody out of the party. There were things that the Fed had to do during the pandemic. I understand that. The question of whether they've gone too far, Mm -hmm. whether they've hung around too much, is a question I can't answer for you right now. It's a question we're going to have to answer at some point. What I can say is they got a little breather at this point in time because only last week, mm-hmm. Yellen was talking about interest rates going up or the possibility of doing that, saying, you know, there's a case here. And I think they just got a bit of time here with these wages numbers. It's not a straightforward answer as such. I understand the Fed's place here, but my, my leaning is that central banks are too involved in markets. Um, but how they remove themselves from them is the bigger question facing markets, and no one really has the answer at this point in time. Yeah, good, good insight. I, I, one critic of the Fed, uh, former U.S. Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers, is not convinced uh, that the Fed's uh, strategy has been validated. He took the punch bowl analogy a step further. Instead of removing the punch bowl before the party gets out of hand, he said recently that the Fed appears determined to maintain its easy monetary policy until, quote, we see a bunch of drunk people staggering around. That's quite yeah. a party. Uh, it is quite a party. Just as an aside to this, I was reading J.P. Morgan's strategies are doubling down on the reflation trade, which actually anticipates good economic growth and an uptrend in prices. And they're advising investors to cut down on cash and buy more stocks and commodities. Mm. So with U.S. indices at record levels, do you agree with J.P. Morgan? Is it still a good time to buy? Yeah, I mean, uh, I I think it's always a great time to buy, Mm. to be honest with you. Right? I, I am the belief that, you know, you should always be buying assets or buying stocks if you have a long-term approach. Um, The question is, where do you buy? This is no longer a market of just being in the market. Um, This is about being in the right places of the market. And we're certainly seeing that. You're seeing the high-growth names really take a beating. We saw that late last week, and we saw that in the weeks before it. And this reflationary reopening trade um, taking advantage, and that's the place to be. To be completely honest with you, I haven't captured this whole reopening reflationary trade because I'm still overweight in these big growth and tech names. Mm. Um, so it's been a little bit of you know, a hurt pain while the market's gone up and our clients have gone up with it. Mm-hmm. We haven't necessarily tracked that reopening. I still don't buy it mm-hmm. completely. There is a place for it, there, and that's called balance in a portfolio. But numbers like this tell me maybe the reopening trade isn't accelerated as quickly as possible. We've talked about this on this show 
for a couple of months. Yep. You know, it's a question of which name do I want to be, and I still want to be overweight in the names that have done well over the last five to six years, regardless of the pandemic. Now, that may hurt me short term, for short term, um, but insanely, you've got to have balance. But like I say, this is not a market of just being in it. It's got to be in the right places. But to answer your first question, I think it's, if, you're, if you're a long-term investor, mm-hmm. then markets have shown you that they go up over time. So you know, using that premise, you should be accumulating stocks. And I still think it's a great time to accumulate stocks. All right. Great insight. A big story affecting Chinese markets now, which I know you track, Jack, is um, and, and something the global financial community has been tracking as well, is that of Huarong Asset Management. It is one of the world's four largest asset management companies, and it appears to be in major trouble, some say on the verge of bankruptcy. And at the heart of this story is a question of whether Beijing will bail out this troubled state-owned company. So what do you think, Jack? Just how important is Huarong asset management to China's economy? Do you think it's too big to fail? Yeah. Let me tell you a story and you'll listen to the story, Michelle, mm-hmm. if I may. Uh, and let's go back to 1997, the Asian financial crisis. So what happened is a lot of these Chinese state-owned banks during the Asian financial crisis accumulated a mountain of bad loans. Um, and then in 2001... China joined the WTO and everybody was excited. And they started to look at IPOing their Chinese state-owned banks. We're talking about guys like Bank of China, ICBC, agricultural banks, we know them. In order to do so, they wanted to clean up their balance sheets. In order to do that, they created big, bad banks, one of them becoming Horong Financial. And what they did was is they moved the non-performing loans and the bad assets and bad loans from their state-owned enterprises into these AMCs. Now, that wasn't too bad. Uh, Holong did well. It started to recoup some of that debt. But then it started to get into other things, infrastructure plays, asset management, and started to lend out itself in terms of bad loans. And this is the situation that we have at the moment. Something like $44 billion in um, outstanding bonds, $22 billion of those, are overseas bonds, so foreign shareholders. So it'll be interesting to see what the Chinese do in terms of foreign ownership, right? Because there's no recourse for foreign owners, you know, people in the Western world, people in Singapore, to get their money back in a Chinese court. So it'll be interesting to see what the Chinese do there. The second part is what you alluded to, is will they allow them to fail or will they come in and bail them out? And that is the pivotal question facing the Chinese PBOC, and more importantly, Vice Premier Li Hua, who is the foremost financial you know, regulator in the, in the country. 73% of this company is owned by the Ministry of Finance, which is quite interesting as well. There is a bunch of these in China sitting right now. This is not the only one. This is simply the biggest one. The Chinese have been very worried about this for two to three years. They allowed state-owned enterprises to go down last year. They didn't feel much of contagion. And to be honest with you, the contagion in the bonds here have been quite contained. So I'm looking like at a 2020, 2022 Hong Kong financial bond. It's trading at 83% of, of, of fair value on it. So that's not too bad. Mm. My inclination is they will come in, they will do a deal, they'll shave a few points over the bonds, and they will allow this to become a smaller and smaller thing until it goes into the ether. But... They are very concerned about these AMCs in China. There are about four or five of these nationally, 
and about 12 to 14 in regional plays that were built on the back of that story that I told you, mm-hmm. um, and it's an issue. Now, China understands that it has to get rid of these. You simply can't allow them to completely fail because of, you know, the, the domino effect that might cause. What I think you'll do is you'll see the same thing that happened in the late 1990s, early 2000s. They'll simply move the debt to other balance sheets around, possibly back to state-owned enterprise banks. But it's not a great look for the economy. It's not a great look for the debt bubbles in China. Um, and they have been worried about for these for a long time. And this is not the last one. It's not a collapse of the Chinese economy because it has such a high savings rate. It doesn't allow um, foreign outflows, so we can keep a lot of that money inside and then prevent some of these things. I, my inclination is I think they'll bail them out. Um, the gentleman in charge, Lee Hua, doesn't like bailouts, but yep. I think this is one where the Chinese will come in and, 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 you know, and bail them out. In January, the company's former chairman, Lai Xiaomin, chairman of Huarong Asset Management, was found guilty of bribery and executed. Huarong was due to release its financial results in March, but then it didn't, and trading in its shares, which are listed in Hong Kong, was suspended. So Goldman Sachs and BlackRock are among the international investors that have significant exposure to Huarong. So if this company goes under, what do you think could be some of the ripple effects? Yeah, and this goes back to the PBOC and the Chinese government. I mean, they need to make a decision here um, is whether they're going to protect foreign investors. And I'm talking, you know, you're talking about BlackRock and, and Goldman Sachs and others that bought, and we're talking about their bonds at the moment, right? So, they, you know, they've got bonds, they give you a yield. These bonds, which were given a yield and paid a face value, mm. are the ones that everybody is talking about and some of these, you know, these investments that they've made. Again, it goes back to how China is going to treat the foreign world. I think it wants to tell foreigners that you've got to do your due diligence on some of our banks and not just buy them blindly. Mm-hmm. But I think they're going to protect some of this foreign ownership. They understand that it's very important that they get this direct investment. And if they let these guys hang out, they won't get the bonds for their other companies and their other state-owned enterprises and all the other infrastructure plays and, and foreign direct investment that needs to be done. Um, this gentleman, like you said, was executed for stealing money. Now, what I will tell you about the company's balance sheet is it's not as bad as we might play out. It's got about $260 billion worth of assets mm-hmm. and around $42 billion worth of debt. So they are big numbers, but they're not unmanageable if they're managed in a controlled way. I think some of these foreign investors will get their money back. They'll probably have to take a haircut on the yield, um, but I think the Chinese government is going to step in and, and, and bail this out. All right. Jack Cousy, founder and director of VFS Group, joining us this morning uh, with terrific insight. Let's switch over to Meituan Dian Ping under investigation for suspected uh, monopoly conduct. And I gave a little bit of an introduction to Meituan Dian Ping at the start of the program, so I want to jump into it. Do you think what we're going to see is sort of what we saw with Alibaba? Meituan Dian Ping pays a fine, heads off without a target on its back. Is that best case scenario? Yeah, probably. Um, that's probably what's going to happen. I think this is a shot across the bow. Here's is what you need to understand. The mm. difference between the U.S. and the Chinese regular, and they're very different. In the U.S., I'll give you a big fine, right? And it'll be a huge fine, and, you know, it'll, be, it'll hurt the asset balance sheet, and then you go along and you do your business. In China, it's not necessarily about the fines. I know Alibaba was a big one, but they, they could have done law. They'll come in and they'll change your business, right? And they'll directly change it. Um, and they have shown that they can do that. Ant Financial is a perfect example of some of these lending issues. 
I think this is just a shot to say we're watching all of you. We've got to remember that China brought in its 35 biggest tech companies about a month ago and said you've got a month to comply. And if you don't comply, we're going to hit you. Now, what have they got to comply with? They've got to comply with this picking of two sides. And this is what Meishuan was, was, was after, asking vendors to only pick one side. So if you're a, you're a, you're a food um, truck or a restaurant, only allow delivery through Meishuan. Don't use Shiba. Don't use LME. Don't use any other food delivery providers. Mm-hmm. The same thing is what they find Alibaba in terms of their e-commerce. So they've told their companies, stop this practice of picking one of two sides, and I think they'll comply with it. They've also talked about monopolies in the Chinese economy. They've said, we don't want monopolies in the online world. If you own more than 50% of the market, you are a monopoly. If two of you own more than two-thirds, you are a monopoly. If three own more than three-quarters, you are a monopoly. We want this broken up. They also gave us a clear definition on what a uh, an income is, uh, what a market is defining. Now, go back to Alibaba and let me come back to Nation 1 in one second. Okay. Alibaba always used to claim, we don't own 50% of the market because... Alibaba and Timor and Tbao, they're part of the online and offline market. So there's a market where you go into physical retail stores. So if you count that all together, we're not 50% of the market. The Chinese recently said, no, online is separate to offline. So they gave us some clear definition here. What they're also going after in terms of companies here is spending excess money and losing money to gain market dominance, which is a you know, a, a playbook of Chinese companies. Go in there, spend as much money as you can, reel out all the small players, become the only person and become dominant. They want to stop that going forward. So we're starting to get some clear angles. I think in terms of Meishuan, mm-hmm. it was just, uh, this is another company we're going after. No one is safe. Make sure you comply or we will come down on you hard. Stock rallied off the back of it. What I will say about Meishuan is this is, my favorite online tech firm within China. This is an incredible company uh, with an incredible management and an incredible visionary CEO Mm. who who doesn't take, um, who's a winner-take-all. He wants to, five years ago, he said, we're going to take on Alibaba in the food delivery space and we're going to beat them, and they did in terms of that food delivery space. If you want to talk about Meishuan, you want to compare it to an American counterpart, Mm Think about Uber combined with Square combined with Groupon. Wow. Like this is what this company is. Um, and they are the, one of the greatest companies at going into a market, um, getting users, getting frequency, and then turning that frequency into assets. Right? Assets that you can't see, but assets. And they are doing a great job with it. And they are, you know, you've got your food delivery, you've got your hotel bookings, um, but they're also integrating on the merchant side. So they're taking payments, they're running your wages, they're running your HR component, they're running your website, which is a lot what Square does. This is a giant. We used to talk about the tech giants as the bats, right? Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. It is now the match, and that's Meishuan, Alibaba, Tencent. This is a phenomenal company going going in places everywhere. Fantastic insight. Really a deep dive, Jack. Thanks for that. Before we let you go, I have to ask you, you can't dodge this one. Uh, did you catch sure. Elon Musk on SNL, by the way? No, I didn't. <laughs> okay. um, and God bless him. I mean, <laughs> I love the guy. But, uh, well, I, mean, I-, I will say this to you, Rob. 
if um, I think I've said it to you before, if aliens ever invaded uh, this great <laughs> Earth, Elon would come out with some kind of suit, right, and defend us against him. But yes, I did, and I and I saw the price. I actually watched the price of Dogecoin last night. Dogecoin, Dogecoin. I don't know what to call it. I don't know how to pronounce it because I've heard about three different pronunciations. But it was about it was down about thirty or forty percent at one stage. But I'm but I'm looking at it right now. It seems to be a bounce back. So. Yeah, trading back at 56 cents. So at one point it was 70 cents per token. And then Elon goes on SNL and it hits a low of 42 cents. Um, and some say the fact that the tokens are trading back at 56 cents could be because of Musk, because his SpaceX confirmed it's going to accept Dogecoin as full payment for a lunar payload that it expects to launch early next year. So what do you think? Where is space, uh, where, do, where do you think Dogecoin could be headed next if it literally is uh, put on the moon? I, um, I don't know. I really don't know. What I can tell you <laughs> is that markets are driven by buyers and sellers. Okay? So if you want to break down a market simply, 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 it's simply a relationship to buyers and sellers. And if, you know, someone like Elon and SpaceX, they're going to push mm-hmm. payments in Dogecoin, that's going to just attract more buyers, which should mean the price would go up. Right. Um, so, and, you know, I watch these crypto market. I still think there's a lot of room because I think there's just so much money on the sideline mm. waiting to get in, right? You know, my brother is asking me about it. He's very risk averse. You know, just people are just jumping out of the woodwork saying, should I buy crypto? And that means you're going to see more of a flow of money into it. Eventually, there has to be some, some underlying asset or some real world use. And I can tell you safely, mm-hmm. not being an expert, mm-hmm. 50% of these coins won't or don't have a real world use. Yeah. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, be careful. Always be diversified, I'll always say. That always has proven the test of time. I don't think that's, that's going to be changed here, but, yeah, it guesses anyone else. How, 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 um, how long have we got, Michelle? We're out. We're out of time, Jack. Uh, that's it. it. I just had one quick question. I just wanted to find out, was this older brother or younger brother that was inquiring about crypto? He is a younger brother. Younger he's brother. very diverse. He's, uh-huh. he's also very, you know, um, you know, with the wallet, he likes to keep his wallet in his pocket, particularly when we're out and about, you know what I mean? So, oh, right. yeah. um, and he's talking about it. So, you know, it just shows you there's a lot more money and institutions are still yet to come in in a big way and that's only going to flow. Yeah, yeah. All right, Jack, I'm going to have to leave it here. Thanks as always for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Have a lovely day, and I hope you guys are safe there in Singapore. Thank you. You too. Jack Cousy, founder and director of the VFS Group. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.